This is No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna, and I've got a co-host for today's episode, associate producer Taylor Velasquez. Hey, good morning, Khalil. Good morning, Taylor. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, except for the topic of today. So school shootings and mass shootings are tragic events that flood news cycles in America. From the school shootings at Columbine, Sandy Hook Elementary, and Parkland High School to the mass shootings in El Paso in 2019 and Boulder, Colorado earlier this year, all Americans, regardless of age, have been in the midst of another deep public health crisis for years. A public health crisis we've all been suffering from for a long time. Today, we're talking about which policies have been shown to reduce gun violence and deaths. When will we look at the problem as a public health problem, like cigarettes and alcohol? What do we know about the motivations that lead to shootings? What are we recognizing about the truth about guns? And what can we learn from other countries who've addressed gun violence as a serious problem? 1996, we had a big gun massacre. There was a conservative government who came in and said, we need to do this for our country. And that was probably the biggest cultural shift in gun ownership that could possibly happen. That is Tim Quinn with Gun Control Australia. This year marks the 25th anniversary of a mass shooting in Australia that set off a series of policy changes on the continent. And they haven't had a mass shooting since. Today, you'll hear about the approaches to the problem locally, nationally, and even internationally. Okay, so you all may be wondering, why is Taylor co-hosting this episode? At a Nomono meeting, she brought up the differences in the generational perspective on guns. Here's a conversation we had about it earlier this week. You know, I grew up with these active shooter drills my whole entire life, and they've only escalated in the tactics they've used since I was in elementary school to the day I graduated high school. That's something else, because they didn't start doing these active shooter drills until I was well out of high school. What did it feel like, like going through these mass shooter drills? As a kid in elementary school, you really don't understand what you're preparing for, really. You're preparing for the worst. So as a little kid, you're standing in your classroom or you're sitting under your desk in the pitch dark and you have someone jiggling the handle and it's nerve wracking and your anxiety is through the roof. And you're just sitting there trying to figure out when is this going to be over so I can forget about it and move on. It's a terrible thing that we put children through for sure. How did you see this differently by the time you got to high school and had to go through these drills? Honestly, by the time I got to high school, we really heard about all these mass shootings that we've had. Parents of victims of mass shootings came to my middle school, for example, and they were parents from Columbine, and one guy in particular had lost his daughter to the shooting, and he spoke with us. And it seems like when I got to high school, it was like, this could happen, so prepare for it. It wasn't this far out idea. It was more of like, you need to be prepared because there's a great likelihood that this could happen to you. I mean, we always hear things like, oh, that would never happen to me, but I think kids my age or even kids younger than me don't have that outlook anymore when it comes to mass shootings. Like the only drills that I had to do in school were getting under our desks in case there was an attack of a nuclear war. But we had to stop doing that by the time I was in fourth grade. And I just can't imagine what type of stresses that that adds on to what you're already going through in high school to have the fear of looking over your shoulder and thinking that any one of your classmates could potentially come into school with a gun and attempt to shoot you all. Yeah, it's also this aspect that you might be put in the position to save lives of your fellow classmates. I mean, you could be either saving your best friend's life or some kid who sits next to you in chemistry, and you have a lot of pressure on you. 
We shouldn't have this much pressure on kids who are trying to graduate high school, get to college. It's just too much pressure for young kids to go through. Do you think that having gone through this experience, and we've seen a little bit with the Parkland shooting and how the students led a nationwide movement in really addressing gun violence, but we also see your generation really leading movements on all sorts of areas of inequity, inequality, things that we have to do in the country. Because you all had to have these experiences constantly, elementary school, these traumatic experiences, these fear-inducing experiences, do you think that's motivated you all to say, we are not gonna put up with this anymore. We weren't allowed to have a semblance of an innocent childhood because of the way society is and you're gonna change society because we demand. Honestly, that's a really great point. I mean, like I said before, from elementary school, we're training to prepare for the worst instead of our lawmakers or politicians passing actual laws that would protect us. It's like putting the burden on children to protect themselves. So, I mean, it's crazy to think that we live in a world where children have their innocence corrupted right away. But I do think the inequalities that we have faced, my generation in particular, we're at the point of saying enough is enough. I mean, I have always said, after hearing the stories of Columbine, Columbine should have been the first and last shooting and just the only mass shooting in general. So it's like the kids from Parkland who are leading these national movements who are gonna get us somewhere. I think we're taught that these things like drills are the norm. Like we prepare for the worst and you're good to go. So yeah, I don't think my generation wants to view inequity or violence as the norm anymore. Mass shootings are back in a big way as the coronavirus pandemic wanes in the United States. And when they happen, the conversation always turns to mental health. But it's tricky, as research shows that severe mental illness is not as big a factor as the debate would suggest. Julian Peterson co-founded the Violence Project Research Center. For the LA Times about a month ago, she wrote these words about mass shootings. As society emerges from a deadly pandemic, we need to do all we can to prevent another. Taylor and I caught up with Jillian Peterson to talk through the facts about mass shootings. The definition of what constitutes a mass shooting is different depending on how people read the data. How do you define a mass shooting? We have this very narrow definition where we only look at cases where four or more people were killed in a public setting. And that excludes things like robberies gone bad, like domestic violence, like some organized crime or um, instances where people knew each other, retaliatory violence. The reason is we're really interested in this very unique phenomenon of people who go in and fire indiscriminately at people that they don't know. Does that definition really take away from the severity of other forms of gun violence? There's other people who track things like where four or more people are shot. Those instances have been going up dramatically, especially through the pandemic. And I think if we're talking about the toll of gun violence on communities, if we're talking about sort of gun policy, gun laws, if we're talking about victims, that definition is the one to use. If we're talking about sort of the psychology of the perpetrators who do this, what gets them to that point and how you intervene, that's where we use our definition. And as a psychologist, that's sort of my area of expertise. Now, we're seeing different stories about how many mass shootings we've had in the United States in 2020. Some articles say that there were fewer. Some say 2020 was a, in air quotes, normal year for mass shootings. So did we see fewer mass shootings in 2020 or is the data off? Using our definition, 
they basically stopped in March of 2020 during the pandemic and were gone for a year and then came back in March 2021. Now, during that period of time, gun violence skyrocketed in this country. So gun violence, certainly we've seen increases throughout the pandemic, but this very unique phenomenon, we really saw it disappear and now it's kind of back. Do you have a sense of why there were fewer mass shootings last year by some counts? There's a few theories. One is that there was just not public places open, and so people just literally couldn't do it. One theory is that it was out of our news cycle. We were talking about elections. We were talking about a pandemic, and we were talking about all these other things, and we know that those mass shootings are socially contagious. So when one happens, you tend to see a few others happen, and so just getting it out of the media kind of stopped it. And then a third theory is that mass shooters have this grievance against the world where they think they're so angry at sort of what's happening to them. And maybe when we were living through a global pandemic and everybody's grieving and we're kind of all (laughs) had this sort of horrible trauma we were going through that maybe there was just less to compare yourself against. As our country is slowly reopening, we're seeing mass shootings all of a sudden enter our headlines. Last weekend, there was about 10 mass shootings in the United States, according to CNN. So what are your fears as the country reopens? I've been in lots of conversations through the pandemic, fearful that this is exactly what would happen, because a lot of the risk factors that we know for these types of mass shootings really got exacerbated in the pandemic. So things like trauma, things like family violence, isolation, mental health concerns, suicidality, and even access to firearms. We had a record number of firearm sales. So we saw all those risk factors increase, but yet the opportunity wasn't there because things weren't open. So the fear has been as things reopen, are we going to see kind of the floodgates open? But I think there are things that we can be doing as we're reopening to try to minimize the violence. And you just brought up mental health. It seems like the conversation around mental health always comes up in these situations. Is there a link between severe mental health issues and mass shootings? For a very small proportion, around 9-10%, they really are motivated by hallucinations and delusions and nothing else. For the other 90%, it's a lot more complicated. And so mental health plays a role, but it's not the only explanation. I think sometimes we get stuck in this, is it this or is it not this? And it's, it's all of it, right? Like these are messy stories. Now, what are the implications of blaming every mass shooting on mental illness? We know that's not the case. So we know that, A, that stigmatizes the millions, nearly 50% of people who will have a diagnosable mental illness in their lifetime. And we don't want to increase that connection in people's heads that people with mental illness are violent because people with mental illness, even very serious mental illness, are much more likely to be a victim of violence than a perpetrator of violence. And so we want to make sure we're not making that connection. However, on the other hand, it gets tricky because there are significant mental health concerns that if there had been earlier intervention, it would have been a good thing. And so I think it's you have to be sort of nuanced in those conversations. Can you break down the pattern of mass shooters? Like if you were to create a profile of a mass shooter, what would it be? So first of all, they're men, 98 percent men. And the profile varies a little bit based on where the shooting happened. So school shooters, for example, tend to be 
about 15, 16 white males students of that school, whereas workplace shooters tend to be employees of that workplace. They're about 50% black, 50% white. And so you see these sort of different profiles. What's similar is you see early childhood trauma, really significant early childhood trauma in a lot of these cases, physical and sexual abuse. You see kind of this slow build of mental health concerns. These perpetrators hit a crisis point in their lives where something happens that kind of pushes them over the edge. Their behavior changes, they're acting odd. Oftentimes they become actively suicidal because these tend to be suicides in addition to mass shootings. A lot of times they're getting radicalized online. They're looking for other people who validate the way that they think. And so people validating that violence and then they have access to firearms. And so we can think about how you can intervene at each of those steps along that pathway. Now, you point out that there are some common behaviors and factors in the days leading up to a person committing a mass shooting. What are those? Well, we define a crisis point as your current circumstances are overwhelming your ability to cope. And there's a change in your behavior. And that's the big thing. We're launching this new website called Off Ramps, which the goal is to help people think about how do we get people off this road to violence. And a lot of that is focused on how do you recognize the signs of the crisis? How do you do crisis intervention and suicide prevention? How do you ask those hard questions? We think of someone in crisis as kind of a balloon ready to pop. And anything you can do to let a little bit of air out of that balloon and get someone through that moment, the better. And as part of this research, we've interviewed five perpetrators of mass shootings who are incarcerated. And we always ask, is there something that would have prevented you? And they always say yes. And it's typically some sort of human connection could probably have gotten them through that moment. Is there a way to turn your research into policies that would help deter these shootings? And also, what would those policies look like? I think there's things that as individuals we can do that don't take an act of Congress. There's things that schools and workplaces and communities can do. And then there are these policy things that we really need to be talking about. I think some sort of common sense gun laws, things like safe storage, universal background checks, red flag laws, requiring crisis intervention teams, resourcing mental health, requiring suicide prevention training. And then you can even go back earlier and think about things like pushing social emotional learning in schools and teaching young boys coping mechanisms and empathy. And so there's sort of a lot of things you can do along that trajectory. So I grew up with these drills about shooters at school, and you've said these lockdown drills are really harmful to the psyche of students, and that these drills are also training potential perpetrators in the details of a school's response. So what feedback have you heard from school administrators or even law enforcement about this criticism? We started doing these drills because we didn't know what to do, and we wanted to feel like we were doing something, right? And so let's do this thing, and we can practice, and we can minimize casualties, When you get into the research, you find out that over 90% of these cases, the perpetrator is a student in the school, right? This is not a scary outsider coming in. This is a student in the building you see every day going in and out of security, running through the drills along with you. Suddenly they stop making sense. Part of the goal of this project was just to gather data and fuel our policy conversations with actual facts and data rather than kind of fear. And I think when people have access to that knowledge, they get it. They sort of think about, okay, then how could we do this differently? How could we just train the adults? How could we make sure that this is not sort of a scary traumatic experience? And so I think some of those conversations are really starting. What are the alternatives to these drills? 
And I think rather than focusing on drilling, focusing on things like crisis response teams, right? And how do you, when you notice a student is acting different, who do you tell and how do you make sure the school is responding with a warm sort of holistic approach rather than criminal charges or suspension or expulsion? How do we kind of create systems that embrace student mental health and give them space? That's hard to do when you've got bulletproof glass everywhere and you're totally focused on security, right? It changes the warmth of that school. There's been this emotional and mental hardship felt by students this past year due to the pandemic. And with schools planning for in-person fall learning, what do you think about the potential for school shootings to increase this upcoming year? We're already starting to see it as places reopen, but I think it's important to remember we're not helpless, that there are things we can do besides just wait for the inevitable. There are things we can do to be really focused on student mental health and wellness, on checking in, on noticing those changes in behavior, on making sure every kid has an adult in the school that's checking in with them and connected with them. I think it's been so hard for schools. We've been stuck in this place where you're just day to day trying to make it through this past year. It's been so chaotic that hopefully now we have some sort of time and space to think about what reopening looks like in terms of student mental health and wellness. In your TED Talk, you say that Gen Z is known as the school shooting generation and that we have more mental health problems than any other generation before us. Is it that we have more mental health problems or is it more that we have an awareness of it and how to treat them? There are people that would argue that on both sides. I think there is an openness to talking about mental health. I think there's a recognition in the Gen Z generation. Students are much more self-aware, but also dealing with a lot more difficult issues, whether that's from social media to lockdown drills, to violence, to sort of racial justice. I mean, there's so much happening that young people are having to navigate. Now we've had a pandemic into it, that of course it's going to have an impact on student mental health. But I do think there is much more willingness to sort of engage in those conversations. Should social media companies be involved somehow in censoring the content or alerting authorities? Or is that really us diving down the slippery slope around free speech? It's a slippery slope and you run the risk of identifying people who would never do anything like this and that there's terrible consequences associated with that. On the other hand, I think when there is incredibly hateful rhetoric and conversations that are inciting violence on social media platforms, we have to ask ourselves, what responsibility does that social media platform have for that hateful energy that's coming out of their product, their business? And if they are allowing that to happen, those questions are coming. And I know the social media companies are struggling with it, but I think it's time that we say, okay, if your site is inciting violence, what responsibility do you have for that? So let me ask you in that same TED talk about how to prevent school shootings. You say you spoke with one principal who talked down a potential shooter in the school bathroom. What insight did he have about how to prevent school shootings? This almost shooting. It was a student in the bathroom um, ready to go into the cafeteria. And he said, you know, we had done all these rehearsals, but we had never rehearsed before the school started in the morning. And we didn't know where anybody was. Our SRO happened to be off campus. It was like everything didn't work that, that they had rehearsed for. 
And he said his advice to schools for school shooting prevention, he had one word and it was relationships. And he just said, it's those relationships between students and adults. They're going to report when they're worried about someone, when adults can be able to reach a kid that they're worried about, that if we just focus on those relationships, that is violence prevention. Now, I know it's not as simple as saying that we need to take care of each other, but to me, that's key. You know, what do you see as a good starting point for reducing and hopefully eliminating shootings outside of school settings? I would agree with you. It's this taking care of each other. I mean, one of the things I always talk about is this crisis intervention and suicide prevention. I think it's a skill like CPR that we should all be really comfortable with. It requires asking hard questions. It requires digging in and having the time and space to connect with people, even if it's uncomfortable. And I think we've gotten away from that. But it's amazing how powerful that is when somebody's kind of right on the edge. And so the more that we're able to train ourselves and do that, I think the better. And in the broader context, how does the media contribute to creating mass shooters? The media certainly plays a role. And we know that through this study of the contagion effect, that when one mass shooting happens, it's about 13 days, you're at a higher risk to have a second or a third shooting. And we know that perpetrators, they study other perpetrators, they idolize other perpetrators. Some of them have even talked to each other in chat rooms. There is this sort of copycat effect that happens for school shooters. It's amazing what percentage of them study the Columbine shooters and kind of reenact some of that. Anything we can do as a society to not give these perpetrators the fame and notoriety that they're looking for. A mass shooting is meant to be watched. It's meant to be witnessed. It's a performance in some ways. It's not just, here's my quiet sort of personal anger. It's trying to get their grievance out to the world to be watched and witnessed. The only way that happens is through the media. And it works. We read their manifestos. We study their lives. We know their names and faces. We, as the spectators, can sort of stop the performance if we stop watching it. And so thinking about how the media could control some of that narrative, I think, is a really important piece of this. And with those mass shootings that we've seen recently, there has been a shift in news coverage with the shooter not being featured as much as they have been in the past. But what else can newsroom do in their coverage? That's a big piece of it. So not showing the name, not showing the face, not sort of going and digging up any old school friend or neighbor they can find and putting them on the you know front headlines. I think we can celebrate the victims' lives. We can know the victims' names. When time has passed, it can be helpful to do a deep dive and think about where this is coming from and sort of how we stop it. But in the moment to stop that contagion, anything we can do to focus really on the victims and the communities impacted, the better. What about U.S. entertainment media and our fascination with action movies and violence? Is that a factor in these mass shootings? These are a uniquely American phenomenon, and there's a number of reasons for that, I think. Our history is a violent history. Our love of violence for entertainment, all of that certainly plays into it, along with this idea that that sort of American dream, if I work hard, I should get what I deserve. And then if you don't get what you deserve, there's this sort of anger and resentment. And then who do I blame? And some people blame women or racial groups or religious groups, but they find this sort of outlet for this anger that they're holding. And I think all of that comes down to American culture. We have these shootings here at such higher rates than the rest of the world that we do have to pause and think about why. Dr. Jillian Peterson is the co-founder and president of The Violence Project and an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamline University. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for talking with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Today on the show, as we talk about gun violence, we're also hearing about suicide and mental wellness. If these conversations bring up heavy feelings for you, New Mexico does have resources that are easy to access right now. Call 1-855-NM-CRISIS if you need to talk to someone right now. It's toll-free, it's available 24-7, and people are there waiting to hear from you. That's 1-855-NM-CRISIS. If you're not in crisis, but just need to talk to someone, maybe someone you don't know personally, there's a peer-to-peer warm line. It's open from 3.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. You can also text them from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. The warm line is 1-855-4NM-7100. That's 1-855-4NM-7100. We'll have these phone numbers on the post for this show, too, online at KUNM.org. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. This is No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. And I'm your co-host, Taylor Velasquez. As the country reopens, we're seeing more and more headlines about mass shootings. We're averaging about 10 every single week, according to NPR. Today, we're taking a look at the pandemic of gun violence here in America. We are inundated with stories of shootings in the news, but we're also surrounded by a culture of fear. Fear that gun violence can break out at any time and anywhere. Stick with us as we have more conversations and information about where we are with gun violence and what can be done about it. New Mexico has worse gun violence death rates than the United States overall, and those numbers were going up even before the pandemic. Miranda Viscoli is the co-president of New Mexicans to Prevent Gun Violence. She fills us in about the lay of the land here in the state. Thank you again, Miranda. Really appreciate you speaking with us. So let me begin. In 2020, Governor Lujan Grisham signed the red flag law that allows law enforcement to file petitions in court to seize a person's firearms if that person is deemed a danger. But this wasn't the only goal of the Extreme Risk Protection Order, or ERPO. Before this iteration, anyone would have been able to file a petition. Do you believe that the Extreme Risk Protection Order law is working to its fullest potential and preventing gun violence? Not at all. And we worked very hard this last session, 2021, to get those amendments put in. And what we have to do is make it so that mental health practitioners and law enforcement and friends can petition. Right now, we've only brought in four ERPO protection orders because the law just isn't working. We're really hoping that it'll get called this next session with the governor because it's a budget year. It has to be called. But the way that bill was passed, it needs to be fixed. This is really a tool to help law enforcement in those situations where a person isn't safe to themselves or somebody else. It's about prevention, right? Prevention before a horrible shooting happens, and it keeps the person potentially out of jail. New Mexicans prevent gun violence. We always want to make sure that any law we pass, that it's about prevention, that it's not about putting more people in jail, funding our private multi-billion dollar prison industry, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The thing I like about ERPO really helps in terms of people who are suffering from mental illness and suicide or somebody who might commit that next mass shooting. If we can get the gun out of that home and nothing goes on the person's record, they get the gun back when it's deemed safe for the person to get the gun back. 
Yeah, and you said that this law needs to be fixed, and there's been a lot of contentious debate even with it being passed. <laughs> Sheriff departments around the state said they would not enforce the law, and Governor Lujan Grisham in response said that they should resign if they're not willing to enforce it. So are you concerned with the law as it stands now being used or even enforced? Well, what's interesting is that the sheriffs that were against the ERPO law, two of them have actually done an ERPO oh, because wow. they realized how unsafe that situation was. It's a tool. This is a tool for prevention. And the NRA fed them a lot of baloney. I'd use another word, but we're on the air. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think once they realize, wait, this person has the potential of shooting and killing himself or herself or another person, we can remove that firearm or firearms and keep the situation safe. Why wouldn't somebody want that? So interestingly enough, two of those sheriffs issued an extremist protection order and the guns were removed. Now, New Mexico is mostly a rural state. There's a lot of ranchers, hunters, and people who engage in the outdoor activities that's offered here. A lot of people in the state own guns. With that being the case, how difficult is it to get the message about gun policy out to New Mexicans? You know, it's interesting. It's a, that's a good question. We've learned a lot over the past eight years while we've been working on gun violence prevention and trying to figure out how do we reach those more rural areas. What we find is that we sit down with ranchers and hunters and tell them, look, this is about gun safety and gun violence prevention. We agree on almost everything. It's the real radical folks that just, you know, spew the NRA baloney. That's where we get into problems. But most hunters, they're the most responsible gun owners I know. Most ranchers are some of the most responsible gun owners I know. They, they aren't the problem at all. It's those extreme folks that just spew a lot of lies about what gun violence prevention actually is. And pivoting to school shootings, when school shootings do make the news, a lot of people's first reactions is to put guns in the hands of teachers and security guards. But New Mexicans to prevent gun violence has been firm in their stances that by arming staff and teachers, that would only make schools less safe. Can you walk us through that argument? Yeah, it's absurd. A teacher's job is to teach, not to worry about the sidearm on their hip, right? The gun on their hip. When they were trying to pass some absurd law a couple of years ago, one of the arguments was the bus driver wanted to be able to carry a gun. The bus driver needs to be focusing on the road, not focusing on whether they need to pull out a gun or not. I mean, it's it's so unsafe. And, and more guns in our communities, more guns in our schools that will not make us safer. And what will make us safer is prevention. What would make us safer in terms of school shootings would be to pass a comprehensive child access prevention law because the majority of guns being brought into schools come from the family or a relative. So if people would start locking up their guns and if they're not going to force them to lock up their guns, we could actually prevent school shootings. That would be something that we would get behind. I understand what you're saying. In the past, not too long ago, I was a teacher at a high school in Los Angeles for students who got kicked out of high school. We had a lot of kids who had histories of being involved or associated, affiliated with gangs. We had only a few conversations about what would occur, what would we do if a student were to bring a gun on campus? The idea of having armed security guard or anything was floated, but it was quickly denied because that just sets the wrong image for the students who wouldn't potentially do something like that. We didn't want to really create that environment of fear. In 2019, you pushed for a bill that would close off the loophole that allows teachers and staff to carry weapons. What happened with that? So what we did was we actually fixed a law and it was representative of Linda Trujillo. And a lot of people thought, 
we were doing the opposite of gun violence prevention, but the way the law was written was that anybody, a bus driver or a teacher, could carry a gun on campus. And so we, there was just a loophole nobody had seen. So we closed that and said, no, only a security guard can carry a gun. We don't want a security guard carrying a gun, but the ship had sailed. Mm-hmm. What we needed to do was close the ridiculous loophole that was making it so that anybody that worked in the school, admin, janitors, bus drivers, coaches could be carrying firearms. We said, no, they have to be somebody who is trained to hold a firearm. What do the numbers say about gun violence in New Mexico? It's a mess. I mean, it's getting worse. We are the top 10 worst in terms of gun violence. And every year it goes up. I mean, every year it's our most violent year for gun violence on record in the past century. Wow. You know, you look at last April, you had over 20 people shot and killed in this state. And that doesn't include suicide because... Suicide obviously isn't in the news, and that's a good thing. You want to protect the family's privacy. And that also doesn't include the injured. So you have dozens injured. Albuquerque is having a real problem right now in terms of gun violence. It was one a night for about eight days in a row. Mm. Tragically, two teenagers will never walk again. It's a real problem. You know, we had years of the NRA running the state, and I'm not kidding, they were, and they made sure that since the 1970s, that no gun violence prevention laws could get passed. And, you know, I don't mean to toot our our horn of New Mexicans to prevent gun violence, but we were the first group to say, whoa, we have stopped every single NRA bill since we've been in existence, as well as passed two and a half bills (laughs) because of our phone amendments need to be made, but um, two very strong bills. One was getting guns out of the hands of domestic violence offenders, which I thought would be a one-year battle. It took four years to get that passed, something that simple. And then we did pass a background check bill. But we have a lot more laws that need to be passed. We're just at the beginning. So what are you working on next policy-wise? Well, really to get the ERPO amendments done. And then we'll look at what could be next, potentially a 10-day hold on the sale of handguns. Historically, we see that that actually prevents gun violence and it prevents suicide. We don't want to pass anything that would put somebody in jail. You know what I mean? So there was a law that was passed that extended the time for a felon with a firearm. And we were against that. You you were disproportionately putting young men of color in jail longer. And that wasn't going to fix anything. Mm -hmm. Um, They weren't going to say, oh, no, I'm not going to pick up the gun because it's going to be three more years. And that's an example of a law that we wouldn't touch because it doesn't help the situation, right? We need to be on the prevention side. I think we'd also still work on child access prevention because of the fact that so many of our youth do get hold of firearms. Sadly, a lot of them are buying them on Snapchat and Instagram. Mm. We need to find a way to rein that one in. And going back to how much New Mexico does struggle with gun violence and gun deaths, according to the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence in 2019, New Mexico was the fourth highest in gun deaths in the country. Do you have any sense of why that is? I think it's a couple of things. One, we haven't had any gun violence prevention laws on the books in the history of New Mexico up until, what, four years ago. And two, I mean, I look at gun violence as systemic problems. So if you look at housing insecurity, poverty, food insecurity, lack of ability to get a decent education, right? The systems keep failing our youth, you know, year after year. And we keep losing generations of young people are like, 
why wouldn't I pick up a gun? You know, why wouldn't they, they've never had anything. They haven't had basic needs met. So I really do feel that if we could in our state, get some basic needs met, get some good rehab going, get some good mental health facilities going and, you know, really make sure that the gun laws we have are working and pass the other ones we need. Because if you look at states that do have those basic necessities met and do have gun violence prevention laws, they do not have the numbers we have. And going with youth and how this impacts youth, many schools are planning to reopen in the fall. Are you concerned about an increase in shootings? We're having an increase in shootings now. So you look at last weekend, in 72 hours in our country, 420 people were shot and killed. There were 10 mass shootings where 17 people were killed and 33 injured. I don't know how we rein it in. I mean, sadly, during COVID, the NRA and the corporate gun lobby convinced everybody and their brother and sister that they need to go out and buy a firearm to protect their homes from getting their toilet paper stolen, right? I mean, the gun sales were insane during COVID. And now we have states opening up great economic insecurity, food insecurity, mental health issues. None of these are being money and time and you know services put into them. And now we just threw in a bunch more guns. Mm. 2020 was one of the most violent years on record for gun violence. That was during COVID. I hope I am wrong. I pray I am wrong that there will not be an increase in gun violence. But I think what we're already seeing is that there will be. Mm. And going back to 2017, there was a school shooting at Aztec High in New Mexico, and two students unfortunately died. In your professional opinion, could the red flag law have prevented these deaths if it was in place at the time? Red flag would only be for people 18 and over. The shooter at the Aztec High School shooting was 21 at the time. So, yeah. So if he had any warning signs, suffering from mental illness, any, you know, having violent thoughts, et cetera, yes, ERPO would have definitely been an opportunity to get the gun removed from that young man. In terms of school shootings, I think, again, that comes to locking up your gun. We saw that in Clovis the Clovis shooting where the kid went and shot up a whole bunch of people at the library. Mm -hmm. That was so tragic. This kid had suicidal ideation. He had a drug problem and his dad had a bunch of guns and a gun safe that he didn't lock up. I may seem extreme, but I don't feel like that kid should be behind bars. Shouldn't the father be behind bars for access to those firearms? This was a kid that, that should have not have been anywhere near a firearm, right? I feel like we need to really start holding gun owners accountable when their guns get in the hands of the youth. Now, you all at New Mexicans to Prevent Gun Violence have been working on gun regulation since 2013. Can you break down what your organization does and who are the groups and people that you work with? You know, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to do what I do. I mean, it's depressing, but it's also really positive. So we created a multi-pronged approach in terms of gun violence prevention because we saw immediately that, one, we have to start a conversation. The door was slammed in our face so many times in the first year. We created different programs. Most of our programs, we work with youth on the issue of gun violence prevention. We feel like us as adults, we got our young people into this mess. And it's our job to get them out of it. Mm-hmm. 
it's way too easy for them to get guns in their hands. So we incorporated a national program into New Mexico called the Student Pledge Against Gun Violence. We've worked with thousands of youth on creating gun violence prevention events in their school. And then everybody can sign a pledge that says, basically, I'll never bring a gun to school. I'll never use a gun in a personal dispute. And I'll try to teach my peers to do the same. And it's usually art-based. So it's some art project that they create. And we basically fund it and help facilitate it. But it's, it's their voice in it. We first started in northern New Mexico that the Youth Resilience Survey showed a 54% reduction of youth bringing weapons to school. Mm. And we can't say that's because of us, but we do because nobody else was talking to them about it. <laughs> so yeah. we also created another program called Murals to End Gun Violence. We're working on our ninth right now. We're at one of my favorite schools, South Valley Academy in Albuquerque. And we hire Warren Montoya from Resonate Art and facilitate gun violence prevention murals that the youth design from beginning to end. We'll be doing the biggest one yet this summer on Zuma and Cole. We just got a huge wall in the international district. And that community, again, will be the ones who decide what messaging they want. That's not our job and it should never be. And we also do gun buybacks. So we started a program called Guns to Gardens. During COVID, we changed that name of that program to Groceries for Guns because we saw a need for food on tables. And basically we give out free grocery cards for guns. And it's amazing. The majority of the guns we bring in are semi-automatic handguns, rifles, and assault weapons. Wow. We get brand new semi-automatic handguns and people are like, why did I buy this? And they don't want it to get stolen. They don't want it to get in unsafe hands. So we do that. We hand out an insane amount of free gun locks and free gun safety information. During COVID, we partnered with the Food Depot and we're handing out free gun locks and bilingual gun safety information to help get guns locked up. And the response was amazing. I mean, we were handing out 400 gun locks in two hours and people were saying, thank you. My kids are home. My guns aren't locked up. And it just gave them a reminder. And finally, you mentioned the NRA and on Tuesday, a judge from federal bankruptcy court denied the NRA's motion to file for bankruptcy, which is a major blow to the organization. I, I, I really hope a lot of people understand what a type of blow this is to the NRA and their futures because they're facing charges for fiscal malfeasance. Have you been keeping an eye on the case with the NRA? And what do you think about what is going on there? Do you see me grinning from ear to ear? Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> I am, I am so happy. I hope that is the beginning of the unraveling of that ridiculous organization. I'm not a person who's necessarily anti-gun, but I am anti the NRA. And I do think they're to blame for a lot of the gun violence that is going on in this country from the 1970s. Well, Miranda Fiscoli is the co-president of New Mexicans Against Gun Violence. Miranda, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. Mental wellness is a big concern for a lot of folks as the pandemic slowly wanes. People went through a lot, and for many, it was a time of distancing and isolation. So if you're hearing these conversations today and feeling sad or angry or alone, there are people you can talk to right away. You can reach out to Agora, which has been helping people for more than 50 years. Agora promises compassionate, non-judgmental help. You can call 505-277-3013. That number again, 505-277-3013. You can also chat with someone online through Agora's website, which we'll link to on the post for this show. 
1996, in Port Arthur, Tasmania, there was a mass shooting that left 35 people dead and 23 injured. This mass shooting touched off a push for better gun regulations in Australia. There hasn't been a mass shooting there ever since, according to Reuters. Tim Quinn is with Gun Control Australia, a nonprofit, community-led organization that pushes for firearm regulation there. We called him up to talk about what's been working on that continent this last quarter century. So after the Port Arthur massacre, where 35 people were killed, the conservative federal government began regulating firearms. Can you briefly tell us about some of the big policies that came about? Yeah. So at the time, we had something that was similar to Ronald Reagan in government. They, to a lot of pushback from particularly farmers and gun enthusiasts, enacted a bunch of laws that we call the National Firearms Agreement. During that, we had such things as background checks, things that you in the US look at. One of the big things that we did was a gun amnesty and buyback. The Australian government bought back any gun that you didn't want or that wasn't licensed, and you wouldn't get into trouble for it not being licensed on their databases. And there was a series of other large reforms that really pushed through. There's some that are still to be enacted, even though it's 25 years last week that Port Arthur happened. But since then, You haven't had a mass shooting for 25 years. Do you think it's safe to say that gun policy changes have really fixed that problem of mass shootings? Yes, I do. One of the massive things is that we changed guns to have a role as a sporting aspect and farmers who need to control vermin aspect. Mm -hmm. And other than that, guns are pretty taboo in Australia. You don't find a lot of people who use them. We do have more guns, but they tend to be collectors and they're not more individual owners. Now, plenty of Australians were opposed to the gun regulations at the time. Can you talk to me a little bit about the reactions to the buyback program and how that really impacted a decline in gun deaths? The buyback scheme happened within a few months of the massacre. John Howard, who was the prime minister at the time, he announced it with a bulletproof vest on to a large reaction that was not popular. It took thousands and thousands and thousands of guns out of circulation. The whole ordeal put a taboo on firearms and particularly criminal elements with firearms, making a national psyche that understood that guns were not something that we needed for regular people in the streets definitely has reduced the chances of shootings in Australia. Before 1996, we were having mass shootings. In looking at the gun buyback program in context of the U.S., people here say that people who want to commit crimes are not going to participate in the buyback program anyway. And they're also saying that without their guns, they couldn't defend themselves against shooters. What do you make of those arguments? Well, Australians don't keep guns in general. We do think of them as a tool. We get kangaroos and lots of them, and that's where they tend to get used. We have managed to bring down the crime rate considerably in the last 25 years since Port Arthur. In relation to what is happening in the US, you're a close ally of Australia and we're saddened. Australians don't understand the US gun culture, quite frankly. We've got none of our political parties accept political donations by any gun lobbies, not the major ones at least. We do have outside influence. America is probably the biggest, most influential culture to Australian culture. However, the use of guns doesn't resonate with Australians at all. And what are the gun ownership numbers in Australia today? Are there numbers back to pre-buyback program levels? They're lower. There's 
about 30% less gun owners than they were in 1996. And talking about mass shooters, the typical profile here is male and mostly white. They're often having thoughts about suicide. And there's also signs that they might do this in the weeks before it even happens. So is that a similar profile that you see in Australia? Definitely the profile of prior shootings. More recently, there's been low level shootings, but you're probably right that the gun club members and the owners of guns tend to be white male and a lot of sporting shooters and a lot of farmers. So they don't tend to be people in the street or your general population who feels that they need to protect themselves. Aside from having these tough gun laws in place, we've heard experts say that many factors such as like mental health access, education, economic opportunity are key in reducing gun violence. What are you all doing on those efforts to help reduce gun violence? One of the most important things that we do is every gun is registered and we have something that's still in progress, a reporting system that tracks guns and then other agencies across the different states of Australia can hook into this system and red flag things. So if you've got a apprehended violence order against you or you've got a history of domestic violence or mental illness, that will flag you as somebody who's not fit to have firearm. And if you already have a firearm and you get one of those, your gun license is taken away from you, at least temporarily. And they're not allowed to shoot even in a controlled setting, such as a gun club, until court cases are complete and they've been found not guilty. Just a quick follow-up. So you're saying that if I lived in New South Wales, for instance, and had some issues, but I moved to Western Australia, my track record with firearms, that would follow me? There's a coordinated system that you all have set up? That's in progress. I've actually just had a meeting with the minister in charge of that, Jason Woods, and he has ensured me that that is very much underway. We import all our guns into Australia and they are tracked with a system as they cross borders and wherever they go. And going back to things like mental health and that aspect, what type of social programs are there in place? We do have what you'd call social medicine in Australia. There's a big spend at the moment from our budget that was a couple of days ago that will be on mental health, publicly funded and run. Mental health is something that is important to Australians and it does happen here obviously in the relation to firearms. As I said, those databases are kept and confidentially. If you're a firearm owner and you are reported with mental health issues, then they very softly try to make sure that you're not in possession of firearms. We do have a domestic violence problem in Australia. That is something specific around mental health. We try to address, particularly on the firearms ownership system. Big change comes from more than just policy. There has to be some sort of cultural shift for it to be lasting. So do you think that's happened in Australia? 100%. That's something that Australians are probably the most proud of in relation to our dear friends over in the US. 1996, we had a big gun massacre. There was a conservative government who came in and said, we need to do this for our country. And that was probably the biggest cultural shift in gun ownership that could possibly happen. Last week, our former prime minister, who was in charge of enacting the National Firearms Agreement, went on TV and said it was one of his proudest legacies. 
and that he would like to see it strengthened and burdened so that Australia remains at the forefront of gun safety and gun control. We've got strict laws here, but we allow people to shoot, but they are very regulated and that's kept us safe. Was that cultural shift? Did it take time? I understand sometimes we can pass policy quickly, but the culture shift takes a while. Can you tell me briefly a little bit about that cultural shift? I think it was pretty fast. I think there was so much buy-in to the we have to keep ourselves safe. I think that it was reasonably immediate that we went, we have to do this for our country. 25 years later, there's obviously still issues that we have to address, but our gun deaths are somewhere around 100 a year in Australia. We're looking at such small more nuanced aspects of gun law that you guys would need to address well down the line, you know? And I think that cultural shift has really played into that. Talking about culture, you know, we import a lot of our cultural aspects from the US because we watch your movies and we love your movies. But, you know, things like right-wing extremism is existent in here, but guns, they're not the biggest issue for us anymore. And what we're trying to do is reduce those numbers and particularly in the spaces of domestic violence and mass shootings have become not something that we need to worry as much about, although we do. And, you know, you're looking at the U.S. from the outside. So if there's one thing that we need to make happen right now, what would that be? I mean, it's a cultural shift. I would love to see background checks being mandatory in every state. Really, you can't take things away because of freedom. You can't take them away from law-abiding citizens. And I think that the precursors to someone committing a crime are there to be found. So you need to be understanding mental health, need to be understanding domestic violences, those things before that person is allowed to have a gun. And if they do come up, if they're flagged in those, then there needs to be a way for them to peacefully surrender their gun and not be given it back. That's what I'd like to see, because we love the U.S. We love the U.S. We love Australia. You know, we're looking at certain powerful groups that get in the way. And here we have the powerful group, the National Rifle Association. They've been instrumental in curtailing all the major gun control efforts. And they've pushed through policy, making access to guns very, very easy out here. Did you or do you currently have a similar group? How strong is the pro-gun lobby in Australia? They're much bigger than my group. They are around. So one of the adverse effects of our national firearms agreement was that in order to get a firearm, you had to join a gun club. Now, because gun clubs charge fees, they are now money-making machines and they have money to put back into political campaigns and those types of things. We don't have anything that's of the militant level of the NRA, but we do have smaller groups that are actively trying to weaken gun laws. That's where a lot of my work comes in, countering those and speaking about the safety aspects. We also had a situation where one of our more minor political parties met with the NRA last year and was caught on camera trying to get funds out of them in order to improve the gun lobby in this country. NRA was shamed because of it and that political party was shamed at the same time because the culture, Mm. we have about 80% of Australians believe that our laws are about right or need to be stricter. 
and a very, very small number believe that there needs to be more gun freedom. Today, we're talking to you and you're in Sydney. You're talking about gun control right now. What are you working on specifically? Uh, we're working on reporting some of the boring things, particularly is getting more research into gun use, particularly people who in domestic violence situations where we can understand how firearms are being used in those situations. We're trying to get the, the gun registry 100% connected between different states and for them to throw red flags when domestic violence and coercive control, AVOs, those types of things pop up. You need to know who those people are immediately, down to ranging issues around safety, around duck hunting. I'm sure some of these things sound very small to the U.S., but they are important steps to make sure that we maintain our culture of gun safety. And going back to gun lobbies, are gun laws under attack by the lobby? And have any of them been weakened by pro-gun groups? It's constant. It is constant. There's always, we had a big case last year where father shot his two children, and that was close to where I live. One of the issues there was that there wasn't a communication between different gun registries and gun clubs. That was a weakening of a law that happened. We don't allow semi-automatics at all in Australia or automatic or any military style weapons. However, recently the Adler A110 was approved in one of our states and that is a military style weapon, although it was modified down to fit within our categories. It is rapid fire in that you can lever action it and it's a fast lever action. These weakening of laws, they will have an effect and we do have the data that says that the more guns in the community, the more deaths there will be from that. There definitely have been weakening and we're constantly fighting against that to make sure that we stay the best in the world. Talking to us from Sydney, Australia, Tim Quinn, spokesman for Gun Control Australia. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me on your show. This is really heavy stuff to talk about this morning, but it's important to focus on what people are working on to prevent these tragedies and how we can all heal and help each other coming out of the global pandemic. We've been talking about some of the resources people can access right now throughout the show, and we'll make sure that they're easy to find on the post for this show at KUNM.org. These people are ready to hear from you anytime, day or night, at 1-855-NM-CRISIS. That's 1-855-NM-CRISIS. And there's a warm line if you're not in crisis, but you just need to talk. That's 1-855-4NM-7100. Next week on No More Normal, we'll stay with this topic as there are so many angles and perspectives to pull together. But executive producer Marisa DeMarco and I will have to handle it on our own because Taylor, KUNM student reporter, is graduating college with a degree in political science. I am. I finished my last final today and I'm set to go. Yeah, congratulations, Taylor. I know everyone at the station's news team is grateful for all of your hard work in covering the pandemic. Yeah, my last two years here were the, probably the best years I've had in college. Everyone here is so genuine and such a great reporter that you're going to get your news still and you're going to get it done well. Thank you so much. We're going to miss you. The best and best of luck to you. Thank you. As always, we want to thank all of our guests for the wonderful conversations and for sharing their insights and expertise. 
Special thanks to Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olaud Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. Thanks to Kaveh Movahead for helping on the editing front. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It is produced and hosted by Khalil Ethilona. Social media management, content generation, and editing assistance is provided by yours truly. I'm Taylor Velasquez. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening in.